it's Wednesday the 7th of February and welcome to Career 24. I'm your host, Kwon Jang-woo. With the April general elections fast approaching, the leader of the PPP has emphasised the need for political reform, while the DP chief has reaffirmed a push to launch a pan-opposition proportional representation party. We'll have more in news briefing shortly. Coming up for our in-depth today, we discuss the growing concerns over deep fake technology and what can be done to address its abuse. And then on Korea Book Club, we review the translation of the best-selling novel Welcome to the Hyunnam-dong Bookstore by Hwang Borum. We have all that and more on today's Korea 24. Han Dong-hun, the interim leader of the ruling People Power Party, vowed to ensure the implementation of political reforms he put forth ahead of April's general elections. Meanwhile, the main opposition Democratic Party chair Lee Jae-myung has said he will push ahead with launching a pan-opposition proportional representation party despite facing criticism. For more on this story and our other headlines from today, I'm joined in the studio by KBS World Radio news editor Daniel Che. Daniel, hello. Hello there, jang Yes, let's start things off with the leaders of the two biggest parties that are gearing up to set the tone for victory for the April general elections. And what can you tell us? Well, at a public debate hosted by Kwanhun Club on Wednesday, PPP's Han dong expressed intent to undertake political reforms and declare victory in the elections. He pledged to realize proposed reforms such as having lawmakers lay down their privileges. Han says he wants to become the one that lays the straw that broke the camel's back. Asked about a possible bid for the top office, he said his focus is only on the upcoming general elections. For now, he even emphasized his trusting relationship with President Yoon Sang-yeol, apparently to soothe public concerns in the wake of a clash between the two. As for main opposition DP's leader, at a Supreme Council meeting, Lee Jae-myung apologized amid criticism over his proposal to launch a pan-opposition pr- proportional representation party, but he highlighted that this is the only way to respond to the ruling, part, ruling site's foul play, is what he called it, an evasion of the law, which incapacitate, incapacitates the semi-mixed member proportional electoral system through its own satellite party. As powerful as, as, powerful as the two rival parties might be, some say there is strength in numbers. So giants should be wary of the rising new forces. Former PPP leader In Lee Jun-suk's new reform party, former DP leader In Agyeon's new future party, former DP representative Kim Tae-sup's new choice group, and DP de facto group's principle and common sense. They held a roundtable together on Wednesday on joint election nominations. Staying with the topic of the upcoming elections, police open situation rooms nationwide to investigate possible election irregularities or interference such as the use of deep fake content. Right, they will be prepared, and they are. On Wednesday, National Police Agency Commissioner General Yoon Hee-gun said... 278 around-the-clock situation rooms will focus on cracking down on five major offenses that violate elections, bribery, dissemination of false information, election intervention by public officials, violence during elections, and mobilizations of illegal groups. There will be stern measures against emerging threats involving deepfake images or cyber terrorism. The government has been cracking down on misuse of deepfakes with a revision to the Public Official Election Act putting a 90-day ban on use of AI-generated deepfakes during the election season. Yes, we'll be talking more about malicious deepfakes and what ways there are to tackle them for our in-depth today, coming up later in the show. Let's turn next to an update to our top story from yesterday. After the announcement of the expansion of the medical school admissions quota, 
Doctors' groups have threatened collective action. In response, the government held a meeting with teaching hospitals across the country. What more can you tell us? On Wednesday, the Ministry of Health and Welfare held a virtual meeting presided by Health Minister Cho Gyu-hong with the heads of 221 teaching hospitals, including university hospitals that train residents. They focused on response measures with teaching hospitals in case of a mass strike by members of the medical community. The ministry requested teaching hospitals actively cooperate in responding to a resident strike to provide proper supervision to residents and establish emergency care systems so that essential care services like ERs, intensive care units, and ORs can be maintained. The Korean Medical Association planned to hold an emergency meeting Wednesday night to discuss response measures to the medical school admissions quota hike. Its chairman, Yi Pirsu, expressed intent to resign the previous day. Yes, we'll see what measures they come up with overnight. Moving on, South Korea plans to set aside 13.8 trillion won, or around 10.3 billion US dollars, for loans to developing countries to fund various projects over the next three years. That's right. The government announced the plan on Wednesday in a meeting on the Economic Development Cooperation Fund, or EDCF, from 2024 to 2026. Under the EDCF, the government plans to approve 4.5 trillion won worth of new projects this year, 4.6 trillion won and 4.7 trillion won in 2025 and 2026, respectively, so a total of 13.8 trillion won. The government expects to spend 6.5 trillion won on the execution of these projects over the three years. The goal for Korea, becoming the world's 10th largest contributor in global development aid by 2026. Last year, South Korea approved a record 3.7 trillion won for 22 projects in 14 nations. South Korea also launched the EDCF program way back in 1987 to help developing countries with their basic infrastructure. Meanwhile, Russia has reportedly allowed the release of millions of dollars in frozen North Korean assets and may be helping the North with access to international banking networks. Can you tell us more? Quoting American allied Intel officials, the New York Times reported on Tuesday that Moscow allowed the release of $9 million out of $30 million in North Korean assets frozen in a Russian bank, and that North Korea intends to use the funds to purchase crude oil. The officials claim the North Korean front company opened an account recently at a different Russian bank in South Ossetia, possible evidence that Russia is helping North Korea avoid UN sanctions. These claims come after North Korea transferred weapons to Russia, which is at war with Ukraine. The New York Times said such financial transactions can be seen as signs of continued development of relations between the two nations. U.S. authorities reportedly could not confirm details of banking-related issues between North Korea and Russia. Let's run through some other headlines. The defense chiefs of South Korea and Qatar convened for talks on Tuesday and signed an agreement on defense cooperation. Right. The defense ministers of two nations announced on Tuesday that Korean defense firm LIG Next One signed a contract with the Saudi Defense Ministry in November to export 10 batteries of the Chungung M SAM 2. The deal was made public after talks to boost arms industry ties were held between the defense ministers of the two nations in Riyadh on Sunday on the sidelines of the World Defense Show. The deal marks LIG Next One's second overseas sales of the Chungung 2 following a deal with the United Arab Emirates in January 2022. Chungung 2 is a domestically developed medium range surface to air missile, or AMSAM, system designed to intercept ballistic missiles and aircraft at an altitude of about 40 kilometers. Next, in a lawsuit filed against the state by survivors of the 2014 Sewol ferry disaster and their families, the second trial also acknowledged the state's responsibility, but claims for compensation for 
secondary harm brought up by the victims were dismissed. Can you brief us on this uh, ruling? Yes, on Wednesday, the Seoul High Court ruled in favor of some of the plaintiffs in a lawsuit seeking compensation filed by 55 people, including survivors of the disaster and their families against the state and the shipping company, Chonghichin Shipping. The court acknowledged the initial trial's compensation ruling, but also increased the amount by 2.2 million won, or over 1,600 U.S. dollars, to 40 million won, or around 30,000 U.S. dollars each. The plaintiffs additionally argued for compensation for secondary harm caused by military security guards' inspections at the appeals court, but the claim was dismissed. And finally, there was heartbreak for Korean football fans in Qatar. In the semifinals of the AFC Asian Cup, the South Korean men's football team was dealt a humbling defeat at the hands of Jordan. There were no feel-good zombie-like Come from behind triumphs this time for the Tiger Warriors. We were so used to seeing that, but mm. unfortunately, we could not see a third uh, addition to that. Over in Doha's Ahmad bin Ali Stadium on Tuesday evening or Wednesday midnight for fans watching in Korea, world number 23 Korea was stunned, uh, being handed a demoralizing loss by 87th ranked Jordan. Uh, some of the new few bright sparks for Team Korea was stellar performance by goalkeeper Choi who was sort of like a last minute replacement ahead of the Asian Games, uh, Asian Cup. Uh, Asian Cups, that is, who kept the score sheet clean in the opening 45 minutes. Uh, Yazan Al-Naimat got Jordan ahead with his goal in the 53rd minute. And just 13 minutes after that, Moza Al-Tamari, who was able to capitalize on careless mistakes by Team Korea, didn't just set up the maiden goal of the game. He finished it with a nail in the coffin himself, the goal that put Jordan up by two. Key contributing factors to the loss include Korea missing Bayern Munich centre-back Kim Min-jae, who got his second yellow card before this game. Also, the Tegu Warriors came into this match, as we mentioned, like zombies, having played over 240 minutes of football in a four-day span. All previous games were physical, grueling, and we valued and valid putting up improbable upsets. But uh, yeah. We did not have enough in our gas tanks and luck tank to a certain degree in this game. Yes, so the wait for the AFC Asian Cup uh, continues for another four years at least. So it could be 68 years before we see uh, glory once again. That's where we're going to wrap it up for our news briefing today. Thank you for bringing us those updates. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome to the Korea24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index rose 33.38 points, or 1.3% on Wednesday, to close the day at 2,609.58. The tech-heavy Kosdaq also climbed, gaining 4.89 points, or 0.61%, to close at 811.92. On the foreign exchange, the local currency weakened 0.21 against the US dollar, closing the day at 1,327.81. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. It's time now for Global News Roundup, where we look beyond Korea to talk about issues making headlines around the world. Joining us for that in the studio, it is our KBS World Radio news editor, Koo Hee Jin. Hee Jin, hello. Hello, jang So we first head to the Middle East, where mediators are trying to pin down a quote-unquote final formula 
for an Israel-Hamas ceasefire. U.S., Qatari and Egyptian mediators prepared a diplomatic push to bridge differences between Israel and Hamas on a ceasefire plan for Gaza. That's after the Palestinian group responded to a proposal for an extended pause in fighting and hostage releases. What can you tell us? Well, according to the BBC, Reuters and Al Jazeera, Hamas on Tuesday replied to a framework drawn up more than a week ago by the US and Israel uh, spy chiefs at a meeting in Paris with the Egyptians and Qataris. Uh, The details of the response were not disclosed. In a statement, Hamas said on Tuesday it responded in a positive spirit, ensuring a comprehensive and complete ceasefire, ending the aggression against our people, ensuring relief, shelter and reconstruction, lifting the siege on the Gaza Strip and achieving a prisoner swap, quote-unquote. The US Secretary of State Antony Blinken on lightning tour of the Middle East said he would discuss the Hamas response with Israeli officials when he visits the country on Wednesday. Uh, Sources close to the talks have said the truce would last at least 40 days, during which the militants uh, would free civilians among the remaining hostages they hold. But we should note that all this is happening while Israel is intensifying its airstrikes on Syrian army outposts in the Homs province. And we have breaking news from Reuters that Hamas has responded with a counter-proposal to a truce deal. Now, the Israel uh, attacks targeted Shurat Air Base and other sites near the city of Homs, according to a Reuters report that cited a Syrian military source. Since the Gaza war broke out in October, uh, Israel's uh, attacks on Iranian-backed militia targets have escalated. And Reuters just issued a breaking report that Hamas proposed a three-stage ceasefire plan in response to the offer presented by uh, Qatari and Egyptian mediators. According to the counter-proposal, all Israeli women captives, males under 19, the elderly and the sick, would be released during the first 45-day phase in exchange for the release of Palestinian women and children from Israeli jails. The remaining male captives would be freed during the second phase and the remains of those killed in fighting exchanged in the third phase. By the end of the third phase, Hamas would expect the sides to have reached an agreement Uh, on an end to the war. Hamas said in an addendum to the proposal it wants the release of 1,500 prisoners, one-third of whom it will select from a list of Palestinians handed life sentences in Israel. Yes, and we'll keep our eyes on the negotiations in the days to come. Mm. Meanwhile, turning to the US, a Washington, D.C. appeals court has ruled that former President Donald Trump does not have presidential immunity and can be prosecuted on charges plotting to overturn the 2020 election. Can you elaborate? Well, Trump's federal trial is related to the 6th January 2021 attack on the uh, U.S. Capitol following the 2020 elections. Uh, Trump had claimed in the landmark uh, legal case that he was immune from criminal charges for acts he had said uh, fell within his duties as president. The three-judge panel from the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit did not agree, according to the CNN, BBC, the Associated Press and other major news 
news outlets. In a unanimous ruling in Washington on Tuesday, it said President Trump had become citizen Trump with all the defences of any other criminal defendant. In a statement shortly after the ruling, Trump campaign spokesman uh, Stephen Chung said the former president respectfully disagrees with the D.C. Uh, Circuit's decision and will appeal it. The case could ultimately go to the Supreme Court, where conservatives hold a 6-3 majority. Trump has until uh, 12th of February to file an appeal. Yes, Trump's defeat in court may be a surprise, but it may work to the former president's strategy as he seeks to delay the case until after the November presidential elections. Now, why is that? Now, the time it took to issue that decision has indefinitely delayed Trump's federal trial related to the 6th January 2021 attack on the Capitol. So while Trump did not successfully assert sweeping new presidential powers to act with impunity while in office, the tentative 4th March start date in Washington has been removed from the federal court's calendar. This is in keeping with Trump's strategy of throwing sand in the gears of judicial process whenever possible. He can opt to turn to the Supreme Court, as I said, uh, which would have decided uh, which would have to decide whether to review the case or let the lower court decision stand. They can also decide whether to put the 6th January trial on hold in the meantime. That appears to be the likely route as the appeals court has given the Trump legal team until the 12th uh, February to prepare its Supreme Court request. Let's swiftly move on to our final piece of world news and we do warn our listeners that some of the details can be distressing. The leader of a Kenyan cult pleaded not guilty Tuesday to the murder of hundreds of followers, including 191 children whose bodies were found in mass graves in a forest. Cult leader Paul McKenzie and 29 other suspects were formally charged with their murder at the Melindi High Court. Can you give us the details? Well, McKenzie, who was apprehended in April, ran the Good News International Church, and he is accused of leading a doomsday cult where he instructed more than, uh, more than 400 of his mass followers to starve themselves and their children to death uh, so that they could reach heaven. More than 400 followers were found in mass graves, as you said, in the Shakola uh, forest, including 191 children. uh, Autopsy results show that many of the recovered bodies had died from starvation, while others had signs of blunt uh, force trauma and uh, strangulation. uh, McKenzie faces several other charges, including terrorism, uh, manslaughter and child cruelty. He preached about a coming doomsday, telling his followers that through starvation they would be saved and meet Jesus Christ. He and his co-defendants have all denied any responsibility for the deaths. Mackenzie and the 29 others pleaded not guilty to the charges and one suspect was found mentally unfit to stand trial. Several surviving members of the group have told family members that what he preached would often come true, citing an example, his prediction that a great virus would come just before the COVID-19 hit the country. As people struggled uh, during the pandemic, financially and medically, Mackenzie preached about leaving the difficulties of the life behind and turning to salvation. That's all for our Global News Roundup today. Hijin, thank you for those stories. Thank you. This is documentary director Jin Young. You're now listening to Korea 24 on KBS World Radio.
pornographic images of Taylor Swift circulating on social media to a finance worker duped into paying out $25 million to fraudsters posing as the company's CFO in a video conference call. Deepfake audio and video are becoming increasingly pervasive. Recent studies reveal a surge in the quantity of deepfake content, with major search engines directing traffic to numerous platforms hosting non-consensual fake content. In fact, to illustrate how accessible the technology has come, what you're hearing now is not my real voice. This introduction has been generated by a free AI voice cloning program using just four minutes of clips from our old shows. To tell us about deepfake technology and the growing concerns around its use, we have joining us on the line Matt Wright, Professor of Cybersecurity at the Rochester Institute of Technology, and Lee Wan-Suk, Professor in the School of Electrical Engineering and Computer Science at the University of Ottawa. Thank you for your time today. Yeah, thanks for having us. <laughs> Thank you. My pleasure to be here. <laughs> now, Professor Wright, Professor E, hello. This is my real voice now, uh, which ironically you might be able to tell a bit better because I have picked up a bit of a sore throat today and my voice is a little hoarse than it is usually, although I'm sure it wouldn't take much effort to fake that as well. Uh, but yes, we started with uh, a deep faked uh, audio of our intro with my voice on it. Our team was surprised about how easily we were able to clone my voice. So let's talk about this technology. Professor Wright, let me start with you. Can you basically start us with, off with the basics? What is deep fake technology and how does it differ from traditional methods of uh, image and video and audio manipulation? How is it currently being made? Sure. So a deep fake is any image, audio or video that has been created or manipulated by artificial intelligence or AI. And of course, it's always been the case since we've had digital media that you've been able to manipulate it and you can Photoshop an image to change it or you could modify, splice together pieces of uh, audio clips to make somebody sound like they're saying something. But it was always difficult, it required expertise and time, and, and at the end, you weren't even sure if you were going to be able to create something that was really good. With AI, you have these models that are trained on all of our data, all of our past-created images, audios, and uh, video, and it's able to learn from that, learn the patterns, and then recreate them to basically create almost anything you want. You say almost anything we want. So what are some examples of uh, how deepfake has been used? And how far can this technology go? Right. So deepfakes have been used for a lot of great and creative things, like the intro that you started this segment with. And there's art and entertainment. For example, there's a museum in Florida called the Dali Museum where you can interact with Salvador Dali who's, of course, been long dead, but you can take a selfie with him. And that's really a fun thing to be able to do. You can bring things to life. You can imagine therapeutic applications where you could talk with 
a long-lost loved one. At the same time, of course, the, any technology that allows somebody to create a video or an audio of somebody saying something or doing something that they never said or did can be used for manipulation, it can be used for blackmail, and it can be used to create myths and disinformation to confuse the public. Indeed, we'll talk more about uh, the uh, benefits and concerns around this technology. But Professor E, how do you see the future trends in deepfake technological development? Uh, Where is this technology heading? Yeah, I guess like most technology development, uh, the technology will head head where people want, what kind of thing people like, and where money goes. So now it's a problem is like uh, if the consumers of the technology, if they have a good intention or bad intention, yeah. But anyway, so it's really fast progressing. So in as a person working in the technology, some of the technology we thought it would take five years, but it took less than two years. So like video generation technology, uh, it, it is, uh, I think, uh, still now there are a, a little bit of manual tricking, some kind of post-processing for now, except uh, some very few examples. But uh, I guess uh, it will be more automatic and then higher quality. And then, uh, for example, I don't know how many seconds of uh, audio sample you used to, to produce your introduction. So now, the, like uh, for the audio cloning, we, we can do audio cloning with five seconds. It's really small samples. We can, uh, we can clone, we can copy somebody's voice. And then so now there is a little bit of limitation for the video generation technology. So, but I think those older uh, drawbacks will be removed sooner or later. But now for me, the technology, uh, biggest, uh, Problem will be, uh, I think, deep fake is a kind of a part of a fake content. Yes, the technology is developing very quickly. Uh, just to explain once again, our intro was you was created using just four minutes of uh, clips oh, from yes. our shows, uh, although I'm sure yeah. it could have been made uh, with less time uh, as well. So let's talk yeah, about now. The... It's a five seconds. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, uh, let's talk about the concerns then. So, Professor Wright, uh, it seems at the moment that there are greater concerns about the malicious purposes that deepfake is being used for, rather than how it can benefit us. Yeah, and and that's really warranted because as this technology comes online. The good things that can come out of it, well, you know, those will come as they come, and that's that's great. But for something like deepfake pornography, that's coming out online, and it hits our social media. It's instantaneous. It spreads all around the world, and there's very little that can be done to stop it. You have to, you know, control, you know, what, every single camera every single video that comes online and and check it there's just so much that would need to be done in order to really prevent that kind of spread 
or you think about the potential and actual, we see it in elections where they're now being manipulated because there are deep fake audio, which is really the highest quality um, and easy to, easiest thing to make that's coming out, that you have this deep fake audio that's manipulating elections. We've seen it uh, for sure in Europe, in the UK, um, and I think it was Slovakia or Slovenia, where they, the elections have been potentially changed by, the out, um, by having these deep fake audio. Right, I understand that there was an incident in New Hampshire in the US where there was a robocall impersonating President Joe Biden as well. And South Korea as well at the moment, we're gearing up for our general elections in April and the National Election Commission in order to uh, try and prevent damage from uh, deepfakes has prohibited the use of election campaigning using deepfake videos. Uh, starting uh, from uh, early uh, from late last month, there's a verification process that's been put in place to determine the use of a deep fake tech. But I'm sure that's becoming harder and harder to uh, weed out. Uh, Professor E, how concerned are you about these malicious purposes being used uh, by deep fake? So, uh, for me, though, I think though for the malicious purpose. It's, uh, I think I can repeat uh, just the same stuff, yeah, because uh, there are a lot of blackmails using the fake videos and the fake audios. Because I, I guess in Korea there are a lot of scams, yeah. So those things is just uh, somebody can call using family's voice because it's very easy to steal some minute audio, and then after that they can just fake. Uh, because there is the technology, as you know, text to audio, and then they can steal the audio, and then they can call the family member, and like, ah, I need money, and then mm-hmm. something. Those are really impacting the family life. These are voice near. phishing and, scams that are becoming very yeah, prevalent yeah, yeah. in Korea I think at the that, moment. Yeah, those things will impact a lot, and that even because of, of video, I think for the video, that's more difficult uh, to do interactively because the current technology, the video takes a little bit more post-processing unless you have a very, very powerful CPU machines. Mm. But at least for the audio, uh, can be used immediately, even uh, now, <laughs> to scam people. So that's the, I think that's the most dangerous in the society for everybody's life. Yeah. Well, then the next question becomes, how can we counteract this uh, phenomenon we're seeing uh, with deepfake being used for malicious purposes? Professor Wright, uh, how do we detect deepfake generated audio and video? What are some ways that we can tell apart deepfake from what is real? Right. So we have a research team where what we're working on is deepfake detection. And our focus is on videos, but I think there needs to be increased research efforts around developing that type of technology. At the same time, there's other avenues that people are looking at. Um, For example, putting watermarks into deepfake uh, generated um, media. So anything that's created using the technology would have a, a watermark that you could detect and you would know it's a deepfake. Um, there's also approaches based on certifying 
what's called the provenance, where everything came from. So if you have a video, your camera has a little chip in it that signs the video. It signs it digitally so that it, everyone knows that it came from that camera. And even though later on you're going to have some changes to the video, some editing uh, of of some type, uh, eventually, you know, some authority or some reporter like yourself could get a hold of the original and then also verify that signature so that it would be known that, oh, that's a real video, not not a manipulated one, or vice versa. Sure, I understand. There are also biometric technology that uh, has been talked about that can perhaps even detect blood flow or pulses or other biological signals uh, to uh, try and see whether the video is, in fact, a deep fake or not. But how far can that technology really help us in weeding out deep fake? Uh, can they be effective? Actually, the, that's a very good idea. But, uh, you know, the, like uh, detecting uh, biometric uh, science, like a blood flow or pulse, they are basically video mani- magnific- uh, magnification. So just uh, we use some kind of Eulerian method and whatever. So we just uh, make a very small change in the video and uh, we magnify it. So actually those things have a certain rhythm. So I don't think, um, I have not heard any paper uh, talking about it, but those things can be embedded in the algorithm very easily. So the, when people make a deepfake uh, uh, videos, Actually, they can add this kind of bio, biometric rhythm inside. So that uh, those things, uh, maybe now we can detect using those technology now, but uh, maybe in one year, maybe not anymore. Because the problem of the defect technology is so powerful, so that like whatever people develop, in the video and then uh, in the audio using some kind of algorithm, those detection algorithms can improve the algorithms to produce the fake. So that it's almost like a cycle. So for me, only way, uh, I, I, I mean, there is another technology we can detect. Something like, uh, because there are only few technologies, known technologies to produce the fake. So that they are basically kind of a deep learning method. So it can be just like a Khan method or it can be diffusion method. They are a bit technological terms. So that they have some kind of features for the real faces and then fake faces. So that we can use the, because we know what kind of technology is making deep fake, so that we can make another technology to defeat those features. On, it's not visible in people's eyes. So that's more like hidden space features. So that uh, there is some kind of a possibility to do, uh, because we know fake technology. Yeah. And then another possibility is like Professor Wright mentioned, we have to use the another tracing method. So they like uh, to detect uh, technology, the deepfake is basically we have to use tracing back where the source is from. Or we have to use a certain policy, everything to put the, in the social media needed to go certain 
place, and then we needed to put the watermarks or some kind of a special stuff so that uh, only with the kind of special marks can be released in the public social media. So we needed to add uh, not video or audio technology, but another uh, computer technology, security technology. Yeah. Right. Professor Wright, do you think technological developments can beat the development of deepfake tech? Can we keep up? Is combating technology with technology the ultimate solution? Well, I think it is. I think um, just as Dr. Lee had mentioned, eventually the detection technologies, that won't keep up. Um, I think we believe in it as a sort of medium, sort of short-term and medium-term type of solution. But in the long run, we will need something that's more fundamental that says, okay, this video really came directly from my camera and it hasn't been manipulated since and I can show you that original and you can look at it and you can look at the final produced video and you can verify yourself that it's the real deal and nothing else is really going to be a substitute for that level of technology. So then in the meantime, while that, while we get to that sort of technology, for our listeners who are being bombarded at the moment, it seems, with uh, deep fake videos and uh, images, what can we do to try and be able to identify it and uh, combat deep fake fraud and misinformation in everyday life? Uh, Professor E, let me start with you. So if we interact with the deep fake audios, then uh, I think audios is more difficult. <laughs> But like if it's a video, uh, still the technology is not uh, really mature. So we can uh, ask people to the certain actions. Like if we ask, uh, let's say there is a, some kind of, we are doing some kind of a Zoom video with somebody, and then the person is using a deep fake face swap so that the person is pretending. And then in that case, we can ask the person to turn the head to the uh, sideways. In that case, the technology will fail because the face swap basically uh, focusing on the front and diagonal face. Mm. So they have some kind of a limit to the uh, more like side face and a little bit more back over the uh, face or head. Mm. <laughs> so there is a little bit of still some uh, limit so we can use those things. Right. But also another one is if it's a live interaction, we have to give a lot of personalized questions to detect. Yeah, we have to we have to be smart right. in our questions to uh, to check if it's uh, right. uh, somebody is uh, doing fake stuff or not. Right. So we have to use our knowledge of the person and the situation to try yeah. and weed it out rather than perhaps trusting our eyes. Professor Wright, do you have any other tips for our listeners as well before we go? Yeah, I think a a very important one is to get information from trusted news sources. So it's one thing, if you just see a video on social media, you shouldn't just take it at face value. You should look at what's the source, where is that coming from, is there 
a reporter that has checked this out and verified that this comes from the real source um, because we've worked with journalists and um, while nobody's perfect, we do uh, get a lot of comfort, at least from the ones that we've talked to, uh, which are mostly for us, that's mostly in the United States, that they are doing a careful job. They're doing a thorough job. They don't, it's really important for them to not get it wrong when they put out a statement and they say, well, this is a real video, um, that, that they have done their homework to do that validation. So that's where I would put more of my trust and emphasis. And I would also, uh, as Dr. Lee said, take the context into account. Is, is this, is what's being said, does it make sense? Does it fit uh, the, the person who's saying it and, and what you know of them? And if not, well, then you really need to take a step back and make sure about the, the source and the, did it really come from that, from a trusted source, has it been checked by a trusted source before you would take that into account and, and believe it. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you both for your time today. We've been speaking to Professor Matt Wright from Rochester Institute of Technology and Professor E. Wansuk from the University of Ottawa. We appreciate your time today. Did you know that Korea 24 is active on social media? You can do more than just listen to Korea 24. You can find out what the team has been up to on Korea 24's social media accounts. We are on Instagram on KBS underscore Korea 24 where we post about our weekly segments from Monday's sports segment to Friday's movie spotlight. Sometimes we share snippets of the team's day behind the scenes so you can get to know us better. On YouTube, we upload filmed versions of our segments, and you can also check out what other language services have been up to. Find us on at KBS World Radio Service. Make the most of your Korea 24 experience by following us on social media. segment Korea Book Club. This is where every Wednesday we dive into the world of Korean literature and books through works available in translation and beyond. Joining us in the studio now, it is our literary critic, Barry Welsh. Barry, hello. It's great to see you again. Yes, hi. It's great to see you too. Okay, so what book are you introducing to our listeners today? So this week we're reviewing a, a massive best-selling novel called Welcome to the Hyonam-dong Bookshop by Hwang Borum. Uh, and the Korean title is also Oseo Hyonam-dong Sochomimnida. And the Korean edition was uh, published in 2022. And like I said, it's been a massive success here in Korea. And I think it might still actually 
actually be on some of the the big bookshop bestseller lists. Uh, And this book is representative of the cosy literature trend of bestselling books that uh, offer readers comfort and solace and warmth uh, and are sort of aimed at helping people cope with uh, stressful work or uh, family situations. The English translation is by Shanna Tan uh, and it has just recently been published. There were some regions where you could get the English translation in October last year, but some places I think are only just getting it now. Uh, And this English translation has so far been very warmly received by most reviewers. And the book seems like it's already uh, gathering fans uh, for this, for its uh, charming and cosy and uh, comforting story. And uh, uh, Welcome to the Hyun Dong Bookshop is a story about people who have experienced some difficulty or stress moving on from problems in their life and about how they find uh, happier and more fulfilling ways to live uh, and enjoy their daily lives. And in an afterword to the novel, Huang says that she wanted to write stories that bring comfort, providing a pat on the shoulder for those uh, who've lost the joy in life, having pushed themselves too hard to do well. Uh, and this book, it's also a, a celebration of bookshops, uh, reading and just the love of literature in general. And I think book lovers will find uh, much to enjoy and appreciate uh, in the pages of Huang Borum's debut novel. Well, it sounds like this book is going to be quite a heartwarming one then. Mm-hmm. So can you tell us uh, what the book is about? Can you give us a brief overview of the plot for Welcome to the Hanamdong Bookstore? Right, yes. Yeah. So the story revolves around several characters, but the main character and the linchpin of the story is Yongju. Uh, and as the story begins, Yongju has just bought and set up a, a small bookshop. Uh, and we learn that she was an office worker who hated her job. Uh, she was unhappily married for several years uh, and is now has now left that job and is also now separated and uh, burnt out and depressed by these experiences she has found herself at a crossroads in life and this led to her decision to, to start uh, take a new path uh, and become uh, a bookshop owner uh, and the novel follows her she struggles to make the bookshop uh, a success several other characters come into the orbit of the bookshop uh, and we also learn their stories and the challenges that they've been experiencing. So for example, Min Jun is a young man who after graduating from university struggles to get an office job uh, and so takes a job as a coffee barista at the bookshop. Uh, then we have Min Chol who is a school student who uh, struggles to concentrate on his schoolwork and is uh, stressed out about passing his exams and he's brought to the bookshop by his mother. Uh, and then we have Jimmy who is an unhappily uh, married coffee trader who supplies the bookshop's coffee beans uh, and so on. And all of these characters, they, uh, their lives participate in the life of the bookshop and they all have some kind of problem or stress or trauma uh, in their life or they're recovering from some kind of difficult situation uh, and they come together uh, around Yongju, around the bookshop and then through their shared experiences and this sort of sense of growing uh, camaraderie, they learn to live happier lives and take joy uh, from the small, simple experiences that they find in their daily work. I see. So it's essentially several interconnected stories centred around the a bookshop and the people involved in the running of the bookshop. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we can see quite an array of interesting characters there. So what is the book looking to explore through their stories? Are there any uh, major themes that we come across? Right, yes. So this is a a novel that's 
prominently about uh, the, the prominent themes in the story are about healing and personal growth, mm. like overcoming trauma, overcoming bad situations, and like this sort of uh, the, the cozy uh, literature trend in general, it showcases how literature can be a healing balm for the soul. Uh, this book is, is designed to soothe people, uh, and it, it also explores other things like the concept of community and belonging, uh, and emphasizes how small shared spaces like bookshops can uh, foster connections between people and uh, understanding uh, among diverse uh, individuals and groups of people. And additionally, the book also touches on the importance of embracing change in your in your life and uh, finding beauty in the just the mundane uh, aspects of your daily life or your daily uh, work. However, having said that, even though this book is in this uh, cosy genre and overall the atmosphere is touching and relaxed, there are several important uh, social issues sort of featuring in this book. So Yongju's workplace experiences are not uncommon. She graduates from university, she gets a job at a company, but she can only get a temporary contract. And she says that uh, permanency, you know, a permanent contract was dangled in front of her like a carrot for eight years. And finally, she quits in anger and frustration. And this is a common experience in modern Korea. And it's been you know written about in several other books and stories that we've, we've reviewed. Mm. Uh, and Minjin has had a similar experience which is also very com- common so he struggled to get into a good university uh, struggled to get good grades whilst he was, was at university but then upon graduation he simply can't get hired at a company despite attending endless interviews and tests and of course his parents uh, are putting enormous pressure on him And but he decides to sort of just give up chasing uh, what he comes to see as a, a ridiculous dream to live the sort of quieter, uh, simpler life working in the the bookshop as a barista. And so this too is a common experience or an increasingly common experience. So although the writing is gentle and soothing, Huang is writing about serious issues and and, uh, consoling people who've been through similar experiences. Right, as you said, these situations will sound very familiar for a lot of uh, young Koreans especially. So that seems to be then one of the reasons why it has resonated so much with readers in Korea, right? right and yeah. become so popular. What do you think they've been able to take away from it? Right, yeah. So, uh, you know, I think this book, you know, Welcome to the Hyunam Dong Bookshop, I think it resonates uh, with readers for several reasons. So... Uh, on, on, in the first place, I think it offers a, a kind of a sanctuary within its pages. So much like the bookshop at the heart of the story, the book itself is just a sanctuary. It's not challenging or confrontational. It's a narrative that celebrates the quiet moments of life, the ones that often go unnoticed, but when we look back, uh, are often the most meaningful. And it's a book that draws readers into a world where literature serves as both an escape and a mirror, reflecting you, you know personal struggles, personal joys, personal triumphs. And I think this exploration of everyday challenges and triumphs speaks to uh, just very common human experiences. And this is something that's deeply uh, relatable. So whether it's dealing with loss or facing uncertainties or finding this sort of joy in small uh, personal victories, the characters' journey, so Yongju and uh, Minjun and so on, their their little journeys offer insights into uh, like resilience and just the importance of having a, 
a, a support system or a network of friends or family or uh, just people that you uh, interact with in a bookshop. Uh, and I think one of the most poignant takeaways from the novel is just this reminder of the power of this community. They have this little community together and it enriches everybody. And in our increasingly digital and isolated world, the bookshop emerges uh, in this story as a beacon of connection and, and warmth uh, and highlights the significance of, of physical spaces for human interaction and, and empathy. Mm. Uh, and I think that's why it's been so successful. It encourages readers to seek out and cherish these connections, uh, to participate in communities, to find comfort in shared stories and experiences. And then finally, I think uh, it also subtly addresses the impact of change on, on the individual and on, on the wider society and just the adapt the importance of adapting while holding on to your core values. Uh, it's a gentle nudge to embrace life's impermanence uh, and to find beauty in, in the ebb and flow of our daily existence. Well, it sounds like a very charming book, a warm hug of a work, we could say. Uh Uh, But I do find it interesting because a lot of books that do get translated in in, uh, Korean literature for the English language, they do tend to be quite darker. Yeah, Uh, right. And it seems like this is a lighter work and showing perhaps a different side of Korean literature. Uh, Would that be fair? You were earlier talking about a cosy literature trend that's Mm -hmm. uh, taking hold in Korea. This is just one of uh, several books uh, in the similar vein that have really uh, struck a chord with readers, right? Yeah, that's true. So this has been a big genre over the past uh, past several years. There's been at least two or three really uh, big bestsellers that are in this uh, genre. And I think it just speaks to something that people are looking for in their lives, maybe coming out of the pandemic or experiencing financial hardship or career difficulties or uh, you know pr- pressure from uh, parents or family in some way that these books just offer a sort of a more gentle uh, consoling way of living your life and uh, I think it speaks to just something that maybe lots of people are looking for right now. Right, a sort of a reaction, an antithesis to the super competitive nature of modern yes, Korean life uh-huh. it's a great uh, that we've seen it. in the past as well. Well, it's fascinating. Once again, it's called Welcome to the Hyandong Bookstore by Hwang Borum and that was our pick for this week's Korea Book Club. Barry, thank you for that review. Uh, and uh, we'll see you again next time. We look forward to the next book you bring for us. OK, take care. And that wraps up our show. We'll be back same time tomorrow. So we hope you can join us again then. I've been your host, Kwon jang And thank you, as always, for listening. Goodbye. Don't even think about checking that message or texting back. Did you know it only takes three seconds after a driver's attention has been diverted from the road for a crash to occur? Texting while driving is six times more likely to cause an accident than driving under the influence of alcohol. Sending or reading a text message causes drivers, on average, to take their eyes off the road for five seconds. When driving at 80 kilometers per hour, that means that drivers travel approximately the length of a football field with their eyes closed. At KBS World Radio, we value our listeners' safety and well-being. If you're listening to our programs while driving via your mobile device, please hit play before you set off on your journey. 
If you receive a message or a call while driving, either use a hands-free Bluetooth device to respond or wait until you've arrived at your destination. You're not just putting your life at risk. Distracted driving accounts for approximately 25% of all motor vehicle crash fatalities. Arrive alive. ABS World Radio.